So we're working through this uh, journey. If you're with us over the next period of time, it might be worthwhile setting, setting aside a few hours over these, this next week or so and just work through the whole of the book. Get an idea of the whole of the book of Exodus. It's a critical book in the Bible. In fact, if you get to the themes of Exodus, I would say you get to the themes of the whole of the Bible. And uh, hopefully we're going to see that this afternoon. But at the same time, it's written as a narrative. It's a story. It's the events of a life, and it's the events of this man Moses and God's people who find themselves in Egypt. They find themselves 400 years earlier in Egypt for all the right reasons. They're saved in Egypt from famine. But things take a terrible turn, and as we saw last week, we see that Moses is incredibly saved from death. Pharaoh looks to uh, take his life, uh, and he ends up, rather than not just being saved, he ends up actually growing up in Pharaoh's house. He comes under the care of Pharaoh's daughter, and effectively he grows up, um, as the film is entitled, I guess, the Prince of Egypt, although it doesn't quite say that in the Bible. I think that's an idea of the status that Moses had. And we're jumping now into a place where Moses is no longer in Egypt. That's because the sections that we're covering are big sections, so we're going to give a a quick whistle-stop tour of what's happened to Moses. He's grown up. He's in an incredibly privileged position in comparison to the rest of his uh, heritage, his country people. Uh, He's grown up in Pharaoh's palace, and they've continued to grow as slaves of Egypt. And one day he's looking out, and he sees an Egyptian beating one of his uh, Hebrew countrymen. Uh, He's incensed. He's absolutely furious at the injustice of seeing uh, one of his countrymen not just being treated unjustly as a slave, but then being absolutely beaten. And the Bible says that he looked this way and that, and I think it's a brilliant way of describing it. He kind of, he looks each way, decides he's going to get away with it, jumps on the Egyptian and kills him. Then he buries him in the sand. This is a great story, isn't it? This is, this, somebody ought to make a movie out of this one day. That fell on absolute definite. <laughs> That's just, it must be warm, all right. He kills him, he buries him in the sand. The next day, he sees two of his um, countrymen fighting themselves, and he breaks up the fight, and they say to him, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses realizes he has not got away with that act. And he realizes that actually, if these guys know the news is going to get out that the prince of, the, of Pharaoh's palace has killed an Egyptian, and he legs it, he, he flees. And it tells us that Pharaoh himself is now wanting to kill him. Why, why want the death of one Egyptian compared to all of these Hebrews, one Egyptian compared at the same time to this 
really privileged person. Why would Pharaoh be so terrified of that? I think it's an indication of actually how fearful the Egyptians were of the Hebrews. That this, this could be a moment of rebellion and uprising. And the growth in the numbers of Hebrews have resulted in them really oppressing them so that they keep them under control. And then when this Hebrew prince who's grown up in, in Pharaoh's palace seems to side with the masses, there's real danger. So Pharaoh wants to kill Moses. Moses disappears out um, away and he lives in a place called Midian. He marries a, a lady called Zipporah, who is the son, uh, the son, the daughter of um, Jethro. And that's, that's him now. That's his life. He's living out as a shepherd. Now, if you've got a kind of storyline of the Bible antenna kind of going on, the fact that Moses is a shepherd is a really interesting thing fascinating thing. Not a mistake, not a surprise, not a, a useful kind of idea, but actually if you look at the plot line, we see Moses as a shepherd, we see David as a shepherd, and ultimately we see Jesus describes him as the great shepherd of himself, as the great shepherd of the sheep. Do you see this? Do you see the signposts that God is planting in His Word, even in the life that Moses leads. You know, sometimes we forget, I think, in, the, in all of the aftermath of Moses' life, that actually he spends a significant part of his adult life as a shepherd, going out into the wilderness, into the desert places. There is actually two cycle races on at the moment. Started a couple of days ago, Victoria, Yorkshire, which is huge. But even bigger is one of the grand tours, the Giro d'Italia, the Tour of Italy. This year, they, they always like to kind of, you know, build it up a little bit. This year, the tour of, tour of Italy started in Israel, which, that, that's amazing, really. Not that they have to, let me explain for those of you who are not cyclists, they don't have to ride from Israel to Italy. They get, they get a plane to, for the next, they, they fly. But uh, they, were, they were riding through um, Israel, and I think the route today was an 88-kilometer straight road through the desert, pretty much. And it really hit me, that's the kind of place where Moses was now living, out in the desert, scratting around for bits of vegetation to feed his sheep, constantly under threat of wild animals coming and taking his sheep. So he's out one day, and this is where we find our narrative today. He's out looking after his sheep, and the storyline is really simple today. He looks over and he sees, which is not unusual, a dried bush grown up quickly under um, uh, one of these heavy rainstorms that they have. It grows up quickly, it, vegetation sprouts out, then the sun comes out for weeks and it dries up, uh, and it would, it would come back to life with the next rains, but while it's dry, it's susceptible because it is dry in that, what, that climate. Very often we find that there would be spontaneous fires, a bush would burn, it would 
disappear, it will be consumed, it will be gone. And he looks over and he sees this not surprising sight of a bush burning, but the surprising thing and the thing that really grabs him is this bush that should burn away doesn't burn away. It doesn't get consumed. He thinks this is an amazing thing. As he goes over and as he approaches this thing, he decides, I'm going to find out what, what's going on here. This looks incredible. He goes over and as he approaches it, he hears a voice which speaks to him. Moses, Moses, here I am. Then there is an introduction of who this voice is, and it is no less than God Himself speaking to Moses. And Moses receives during the conversation uh, a commission. He is given a job to do, which is a terrifying job to go back to Egypt and to because God has heard the people's cries to free and to liberate God's people from Egypt and to bring them into a new land. That is basically the story. And here we are in 21st century, Western, technologically developed culture, and we're asking ourselves a question, how do we possibly learn anything from this story from thousands of years ago? I think there are three things that I want to share with you about God. And then three things out of that which I want to share with you about how God works. So three things about God and three things about how God works. And I think it will suddenly become incredibly apparent to us that we can learn today from this incident all of that time ago. First thing that we see then is Moses approaches, he sees this burning bush, and as he approaches, he realizes that he is being spoken to by God. So the first thing that I want to see, really simple, is we see that God is a speaking God. God is a speaking God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him, in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. God speaks. You know, here we are today. What does that mean for us today compared to then? I think it's exactly the same message for us today as for then. There were all sorts in the culture of the day for the people of Egypt, all sorts of different ideas of what God was like. God was a God of the sun. God was a God of water. God was a God of the, uh, the weather, all sorts of different ideas. What is God like? You know, that question is actually no different for us today. We live in a culture, I would say, that is more interested in God than probably for the past 50, 100 years maybe. People are really interested in God. They're interested in the idea of God. 
They're interested in the idea of this something more than just what we see and live with today. But we have the same question today as then. What is God like? Is He this sort of indistinguishable spirit force? Is He a power that kind of dwells either inside of us or inside of the world that we live in or in nature or whatever it might be? What is God like as soon as we have portrayed before us the idea that God is a God who says, Moses, Moses, calling him by name, we realize this, that God is a God who speaks, who communicates, who therefore is in using human language a person. It's a God who we can relate to, a God who we can engage with, not a spiritual force, not an ideology, not some amazing concept, not something that's actually going to take us outside of this world into some ethereal kind of spiritual dimension. God is a God who speaks to us in this world. I think that is an amazing thing that we see about God, that we see portrayed in Moses at this moment that is relevant for us today. God speaks. In fact, we are even more privileged in understanding the nature of God, even the Moses. You think it's amazing to end up God speaking to you with a voice like that? That might seem, I think it would be amazing. But actually, we are more privileged. There's a little hint in this text which gives us something to think about. There's the voice of God and there's the angel of the Lord. There's these two things going on. See what it says um, in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. And then it says earlier in that, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. There's this kind of idea that in one sense, God is somehow present in that flames and an angel present in there, and yet God is also invisible and distant. There's a nature of God there which we're thinking, how do you possibly get our heads around that? And Hebrews writer comes in and he says this, that seems really difficult to understand, but now we can see it. And he says this, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets and many times and in various ways. God spoke through prophets. God spoke through burning bushes and angels in flames and all sorts of really strange things. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. When He appointed, whom He appointed, heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. This idea for us, what's God like? Can we communicate with Him? Can we relate to Him? God says, I'm going to take you on a journey. It's going to take a few thousand years, 
but it's going to start with a burning bush and, and an angel of the Lord in flames and a kind of a voice and a distant God and a present God, but it's going to result in a God who speaks in Jesus. And then you're going to be able to really understand it. And we are way more privileged than Moses because we can see that. We can see the end objective. God's taking humanity on a journey. This is what I'm like. So the first thing that we see is He is a speaking God. Second thing we see is this. He is a faithful God. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. Moses said, who are you? Who are you? I, I don't know who you are. What kind of God are you? And he says this, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 400 years earlier, Jacob had gone into Egypt with his family. By this point, I reckon for most of the Hebrews, Jacob is a distant memory, if he's remembered at all. They kind of know their heritage. God might be whispered in homes. He might be talked about, but I reckon for most Hebrews, at this moment in their history, they think God has given up on us. What Jacob believed, what Jacob thought was said to him, what Abraham believed that we were going to become a great nation, well, maybe, but when, when he said that we're going to be blessed, we can forget about it. I reckon that for most of the Hebrews in Egypt at that time, they had exactly the kind of mindset towards God that many people who admit that they might believe in God today probably might say as well. Something like this, well, maybe if God does exist, fine, but he's forgotten about this world. Because this world is a mess. Because this world is a shocking, horrible place. And God's forgotten about us, if he actually does exist. The wider community might say that. You might be in conversations with people who might say that. Or maybe in your own personal experience, you might actually feel like that as well. God has forgotten about me. If He exists, He's a distant memory. All those things that He said, I just don't know whether I can actually believe. 400 years in Egypt. It would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more years before Jesus. <laughs> and we might feel, God's forgotten about me. But one of the things that we are shaken into considering by this little section here is a God who seems as though He's a forgotten God, is a God who is faithful. When God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, why does He use those descriptions? He uses those descriptions because He's basically saying, the promises that I made to them are the promises which I am now going to fulfill. What I promised back there 
It's going to happen because that's the kind of God I am. Do you sometimes feel as though this Christian life is just worth giving up on because it is too hard? One of the promises that Jesus makes is that He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. You know when you go into work this week, or whatever you're going to be doing this week, and actually a Sunday service, which might have been a little oasis, where you forget about all the reality of life, is now a distant memory. You're in the thick of it, and all the stuff that you were fearful about happening is actually happening. God says, I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you because I am that kind of faithful God. It might not seem it at the time. You might have to go through some pretty terrible stuff, but I'll never leave you. I'll be there alongside you. When you are taking the hassle and the stick because of your deep convictions that life is not shaped us to enjoy at the expense of everybody else, but actually life is for us to enjoy when we find our life in Jesus. And that is so counter the world that we live in, which says, enjoy yourself at the expense of everybody around you, and you feel like, I want to give up, I want to sack this in, I want to just go with the flow. He says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And I will strengthen you for you to continue in the faith which I have placed within you. And I will bring to completion what I have knit into your very being. Because God is a faithful God. Third thing we see, God is an intervening God. It's all right for God to be faithful. It's all right for God to be the kind of God who speaks Does he do anything? (laughs) Verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I've come to save them. I've come to intervene. Later on, he says in verse 12, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. How does God do stuff? He does stuff through ordinary people. An ordinary shepherd who we find in the next section, actually, who can't even, doesn't even feel as if he's qualified to speak, feels as if he struggles to even engage in communication and therefore says, well, take Aaron with you. Moses is the most unlikely of people to go and save his people. But God is an intervening God. Do you see that kind of, I always say there's so many parts of the Bible are like flying a two-stringed kite. You know the kites with two strings where you 
If you don't hold on to both strings, it crashes. But when you hold on to both strings and pull one and then the other, you can do some amazing kind of patterns in the sky. Holding on to the two strings of this idea, or on the one hand, God says, I've come down to rescue you. And then on the other hand, he says, now I'm sending you, Moses. Rescue by the hand of God is worked out in ordinary people. Ordinary people. This kind of tension between the work of God and the work of man. Humanity on the one hand and divinity on the other hand coming together and and working it, it almost in that kind of oneness. And then you think, hang on a sec, that takes me again to Jesus, who is both fully human and fully divine and very ordinary and yet works out God's work. I th- that theme, it's like God is saying, okay Moses, I know I haven't seemed to have been around for 400 years. I know that humanity, I know that the world needs to understand what I'm like And therefore, you need to understand that I speak. You need to understand that I'm faithful. You need to understand that I intervene. But you also need to understand that my intervening is going to be marked throughout history by this combination of humanity and divinity working together. Ordinary people working together. You might be here this afternoon and you might think, well, I'm not really sure about this Christian faith. Because it seems, what's it all about? You know, it seems on the one hand very spiritual, but these are just ordinary people. That is exactly how God works. He actually says, I'm not going to zap people from heaven. I'm going to use the ordinary people of my church for you to come to know about me but it will be at the same time kind of infused with my divine power by the presence of my Spirit. The divine and human always working together. And in what God says at this moment, we get two things. We get the big banner right across the whole of this book. And we also get the great big banner across the whole of the Bible. And it's this. I've come to save you. That, that's the storyline of Exodus. It's the storyline of the Bible. It's what it's all about. Jesus is saying, God is saying, through Moses and through Jesus, I've come to save you. So I want to just very quickly to conclude, look at three ways in which for both Moses and for us, when God saves us, what does it look like? God speaks to him. Salvation in God is always about God starting it. It's always about God starting it. It might not feel for you like God starts it. But actually in the 
the strange kind of journey of life and the connections that you make and the people that you speak to and the fact that you find yourself irresistibly drawn to find out a little bit more about this Christian faith and then you go a little bit deep in, you realize a little bit more and then something speaks to you and you think, wow, that, that's amazing and then you suddenly realize it has been God that has been speaking to me all the time. It's been God that's been speaking. It's been God that has been initiating this. It has been God who's placed me in this desert place to see a burning bush that isn't consumed. It's God who's saying, come over here and look at this, Moses. It's God who's speaking. It's God who's put you in contact with a particular friend or situation or whatever it is that has resulted in you listening to a message about a guy thousands of years ago in a desert which speaks about Jesus and it's God speaking because it is always God who initiates, always. He makes the first move. We might feel as if we do, but he makes the first move. Secondly, thing we see is this. When we truly come face to face with God, we are deeply exposed. Look at what happens to Moses. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God uses a really normal cultural convention for Moses. If you went into an Egyptian home, certainly if you went into a Hebrew home, and for much of the Middle East now, when you go into a place, you take off your shoes. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of saying you've come into, the, into a place of significance. Moses is, is realizing that he's come into a place of significance. He's come into a place where he is truly engaging with God. And then when he realizes who it is, he hides his face. He is torn apart. He is terrified, he is fearful, he is rocked. There is something about God which strips us to nothing. It leaves us with a sense of realization of what I am truly like. We might not like to hear that in our culture. We might not like to hear that that's what God does to us. But if God doesn't do that to us, He's not really worthwhile as a God, is He? He's not big enough. He's not glorious enough. He's not overwhelming enough. We need a God who is overwhelming and yet still inviting, where we feel a sense of awe and yet we also feel a sense of peace where we feel a sense of shame, and yet we also feel a sense of acceptance. That's what God has got to be like. That's what Jesus was like. 
John says it right at the beginning of his gospel. He says this, the word Jesus became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's what John understood. Jesus came as an ordinary human being, but at the same time, that means that he's, he's approachable. It means that we can come to him. It means that we can speak to him. He means these all of those things that we need, and yet at the same time, he is overwhelming, and he is glorious. You know, we can never have a God that is too overwhelming for us. It, God can never be too big. It, we'll never get to the kind of boundaries of how amazing and glorious and overwhelming God is. But He is also at the same time a God who engages. He says, Moses, take off your shoes, come into my presence and hear me. Salvation, when we truly come to know God, that is one of our experiences. And I think it's an experience for the rest of our Christian journey. We continue to be deeply, deeply, deeply aware of the reality of us <laughs> compared to God. We become even more aware of how unworthy and yet at the same time how loved we are. That is just great news that God is that kind of God. The third and final thing is this, that when we truly come into that connected salvation relationship with God, we find this, our life course is always changed. I reckon Moses, I don't know what he'd planned that night, I don't know what he'd planned for the next weeks, months, or years, but all of the indications were a life lived out in Midian with Zipporah and his son and however many other children they have and a life being a shepherd and God says, you've got a job to do now and it's to go back to that terrifying place, Egypt, and bring my people out. I don't think any of us are going to get given a job like that. But a true, confronting relationship with God is always going to knock us off course. It's always going to change the direction. You might still do the same job. You might still see life unfold with the basic kind of milestones that you expected. But your motivations will be completely rearranged. Your attitudes towards those milestones will be completely rearranged. Your attitude towards a career. You might pursue a career, but a true confronting relationship with God, little by little by little, will chip away at one expectation of your career and bring another expectation of that career in, in its place. We will be changed. We will be changed. Surprisingly. Because a true relationship with God is one of discipleship. 
I think one of the things, and I'll close with this, I think one of the things that for maybe the past um, 7,500 years, the Christian church has misshapen what a Christian is. And we've put in place the idea that a Christian is somebody who's made a decision and said a prayer. And I would say, without a doubt, for many, that can definitely be the starting point, absolutely. But that's not it. It's a life which is reorientated. It's a life which is reshaped. Motivations that you did not even understand before become really important to you. And it is, it is that life of discipleship, which is what Jesus said when He said, I've come to give you a life which is abundant and full. It is not a life of discipleship which becomes a pain and oppressive. It's a life which actually makes life worth living. It gives purpose. It gives meaning. It gives a sense of worth. But it's a sense of worth in a surprising direction that you never knew. So what have we said? from a burning bush thousands of years ago. We said that our God is a God who speaks, He's a God who's faithful, and He's a God who intervenes. And being saved in Him is always when He initiates it. It's always when I have a deep sense of truly who I am. And it's always when I realize that my life is dramatically changed. I want to encourage every one of us to realize that that is life. And that is life that is of worth and of value.